You can see our passage printed for you in your order of service there in Mark chapter 5 as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Mark together. One of my favorite TV shows from several years back uh, was a TV show on Fox called 24 that some of you might have uh, seen before. I can see the stress in some of your faces, even just saying that title of the show. It's about a a special agent uh, who works in an anti-terrorism task force named Jack Bauer. And he's kind of like an anti-terrorism Chuck Norris, like by himself, single-handedly, Um, It's his role in the period of one 24-hour day to save the country from all of these major threats. He's got got a 24-hour period to by himself single-handedly save the president from assassination and kidnapping and to save New York and Los Angeles from a nuclear threat and uh, some other city from uh, toxic warfare, something like that. And that's only listing a few of them. But he's only got 24 hours to do it. The show's called 24 because it's about the life of, it's about one day in Jack Bauer's life. And so each episode is a one-hour period in that day. They, they should have called the show the worst day ever. <laughs> because that's about what it is. The day just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. He jumps from one frying pan into the, into the fire only to realize That was just another frying pan, and so he jumps into another fire. It just keeps getting worse, and it's the most heroic, edge-of-your-seat, stressful 24-hour period in the history of all of television because Jack Bauer, by himself, single-handedly, it's on his shoulders, he has to face these major threats and enemies that are threatening the country and can bring the whole country to its knees in just a short amount of time. Well, Mark has never heard of Jack Bauer, and Mark has never watched the show 24, but we are in the middle of a Jack Bauer-like day in the life and story of Jesus here in in Mark chapter 5. It started just a few chapters ago, which was, it's really just a few hours ago in the life of Jesus. Um, When When Mark records this very long Jack Bauer-like day in the life of Jesus where in one 24-hour period he confronts all of the major threats and enemies that have been bringing humanity to its knees since the Garden of Eden. It started uh, just just a few hours ago, but two weeks ago if you were here, when Jesus is crossing over the Sea of Galilee. He's in the boat and the storm comes up. And Jesus looks at the wind and the waves and he says, sit down and shut up. And they do. And we see that Jesus, he's demonstrating himself to be the unquestioned, unrivaled Lord over nature, over the natural world. And then he lands on the shore and this army of demons meets him. And we see Jesus demonstrating um, Again, that he is the unquestioned, unrivaled Lord, not only over the natural realm, but over the supernatural realm, over what Paul calls the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says to them, sit down and shut up, and they do. But the day just keeps going. This Jack Bauer-like day in Jesus' life is not over yet. It just keeps going, and it might even go from bad to worse because he gets back in the boat, he comes back into Israelite territory where two more threats 
meet him. Two more ancient enemies that have been bringing humanity to its knees ever since the Garden of Eden. Two enemies that have been wreaking havoc and destroying lives and terrorizing humanity since the beginning. Two enemies that you have probably encountered before, and if you have, you have the deep wounds to prove it. Two enemies that right now, as we speak, are bringing this world to its knees, and the very best and brightest of humanity have no idea how to stop them. They are right now winning. They've got a 100% batting, well, 1,000% batting average against humanity. They've got a perfect record. They just keep beating us. These two enemies, they can bring this world to its knees and they can bring you to your knees so quickly. And we're utterly powerless to stop them. These two enemies, they can rob you of what you love the most. And they can rip your life apart. They can turn your world upside down and hurt you in a way that you may not be able to recover from on this side of heaven. What are they? They are disease and death. Disease and death. Two of the most vivid reminders that we have that the world is not the way that it was made to be. Disease and death. And what we see here at the end of this Jack Bauer-like day in Jesus' life is that Jesus is a Savior who's strong enough and good enough to bring to their knees the enemies that are always bringing us to our knees. And because that's true, it means you can trust Him. It means you can trust Him when you don't have the answers or when life hurts or when you're brought to your knees. And maybe, maybe you are right now. In our passage this morning, two very different kinds of people from two very different backgrounds both learn this exact same lesson. And Mark records this Jack Bauer-like day in Jesus' life so that we can learn it too. Let's read together. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. This is God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I can just touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? For he looked around him to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ever hearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear you. We pray that we would learn the wonders of your grace and that you would give us eyes to see you seeing us this morning. We come, O oh Lord, with empty hands and pray that you would meet us. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So in our passage, Jesus encounters here two very different kinds of people from two very different situations and backgrounds. There is, there's almost no common ground between this woman and Jairus. This woman, she had been sick and miserable for, we learned, 12 years. She had been ritually unclean because of this bleeding disease that was embarrassing and shameful. The purity laws, according to that day, would have meant that she had to self-quarantine from her community and from her church because her uncleanness was contagious. If you sat in a seat that she had just sat in, you, you were unclean. And so, just imagine, this, this woman was not going over to friends' houses and friends were not inviting her over to their house. Some of you know what it's like to self-quarantine because you've been exposed to COVID-19. And you, you know what it's like to be pulling your hair out after just like four days, right? But you know that there's an expiration date on your self-quarantine. This woman had no expiration date. And it had lasted and was going on for 12 years. And every effort that she had made to get better had only made it worse. She was cut off in shame from her community and from her families, her friends, and from her, ch and from her church, from every vestige of, of religious life. She couldn't go to the synagogue or church, and the, the local synagogue did not have a live stream option. So she was cut off. She was at the bottom end, the, the bottom rung of the, the ladder when it comes to status, to prestige, to, to power. But the other person that Jesus encounters here, it's hard to think of someone who's, who's more opposite than her in terms of those categories. Jairus, we learn, is an insider. He's a well-respected and known and recognized public religious figure. He's a, one of the rulers of the synagogue. Um, 
This man practically lived at the synagogue, whereas this other woman could not go there. He's respected. He's part of the elite, upper crust part of society. They're so different in all of these major ways, but Mark wants us to see that all of those big, noticeable ways that they're different pale in comparison to the way that they're the same. Jesus tends to have that effect on people. And suffering tends to have that effect on people. You see, as different as they appear to be, they're actually the exact same by the time that they reach Jesus. They're both desperate. They're both holding on by their pinkies to the end of their ropes because they have both been brought to their knees by two of these enemies that we mentioned earlier, death and disease, and they are being crushed under the weight of those two enemies that they have no control over. And that means that what makes them different fades completely out of view because Jesus wants us to see that they're exactly the same and they're exactly like you and me. On this particular day, this Jack Bauer-like day um, in the life of Jesus, these two very different people come to Jesus and learn the exact same lesson. They both learn what faith brings to Jesus and what faith receives from Jesus. Mark shows us that. Of all of the differences, they both bring the same thing to Jesus, and they both receive the same thing from Jesus. And so that's how we're going to approach the passage this morning. Two questions. What does faith bring to Jesus? And what does faith receive from Jesus? Because the passage, it is about faith. You notice that Jesus, Jesus says, I want you to be clear. Your faith has healed you. And then he turns right around and he says to Jairus, don't fear, only believe. And that word to believe, it's just the, it's the verb form, but it's the exact same word in Greek as the word faith. So what does faith bring to Jesus? What does faith have to offer? What does faith bring to the table when we come to Jesus? Well, notice as different as they are, they both bring the same thing. And it's the hardest thing in the world to have. And when you have this thing, you want to get rid of it as soon as you can. It's something, though, that Jesus finds so attractive that he never says no to. What is it? It's nothing. Nothing. They both bring a whole lot of nothing to Jesus. And nothing like this is the hardest thing in the world to have, but it is also something that Jesus just can't say no to. Um, It's the one thing that they both have to bring to Jesus. (laughs) Nothing. Nothing but desperation. Nothing but their broken hearts and their pain and their inability and their weakness to do the one thing in the world that they want. Let's start with Jairus. You see, Jairus, this man has an impressive resume. He could have pulled out a resume to Jesus and flashed it at him that would have been 10 pages long. Jairus could have flashed his badge at Jesus to let him know, hey, this is who you're dealing with. I'm one of these kinds of people. And if you say that you know God, you would know that because God knows me. I've got a long history with God, and I know a lot about God, and I've got quite a history to prove it. He could have said, here's my qualifications. Here's my, here's my ticket. Um, here's my record. But he doesn't go that route at all. Notice, 
Instead of doing that, he just simply falls at Jesus' feet. He leaves his dignity behind. He leaves his resume behind. It's so humiliating for someone like this to have fallen at the feet of Jesus. He's the ruler. He's one of the rulers of a synagogue. You remember, they hate Jesus. We've already learned what what they think about Jesus so far. And if Jairus' friends had seen him falling face down before this guy, they would have lost every ounce of respect that they had for him. But Jairus leaves his resume behind and he leaves his dignity behind because it doesn't matter. What does matter is that his daughter is dying. He falls down and Mark says he implored him earnestly. It's hard to get stronger language than that. In other words, Jairus is losing it. He's completely losing it. And here's why. My little daughter is at the point of death. My little daughter. You can just hear the affection and the love in this father's plea. We learned that she's 12 years old. She is as old as that other woman has been bleeding that we're about to meet. And Luke tells us, when he records this story, that she is his only daughter. Which means that it's not too much of a stretch to think that Jairus was maybe older, probably past the age of having more children. His only little girl is 12 years old. She's almost a teenager And she is his world. And she's dying. That's a parent's worst nightmare. Some of you have lived it. And it forces him to come to Jesus with absolutely nothing. Nothing but empty hands. Nothing but desperate need. And right when we think that there's hope, right when you could you can imagine that Jairus begins to see maybe a light at the end of the tunnel because Jesus agrees to come with him. Someone else interrupts the story, the flow of the narrative. Someone else barges in with their desperate need, with their nothing. And it's this woman that we're told has been bleeding and suffering for as long as Jairus' daughter has even been alive. Twelve long years of the shame and embarrassment and isolation and distance and looking for answers and only making it worse. She knows that she has nothing to offer Jesus. Absolutely nothing. Except what would actually count against her. This woman's not even supposed to be in this crowd on this day. She's contagious. Um, she, for her to come into contact with other people Um, reflected poorly on her, but especially for her to come into contact and to defile by touching him a a respected religious person like Jesus. I mean, imagine the party foul that it would be if you knew that you were COVID positive and you went and shook the hands and sneezed in the face of the governor. Nobody does that. And here's this woman just creeping through the crowd, knowing what's at stake, bringing her nothing to Jesus, because here's her plan. If I can just get close enough, if I can just get close enough, I can touch him and run. She just wants a heal and run. 
um, because she's got nothing to offer except her uncleanness, nothing to offer except what counts against her, nothing except her long story of failing to get better. So here's these two very different people from two very different backgrounds united in the same most important way. They both bring their nothing to Jesus. There's another show um, that you may have watched before. It's my, it, I think it's one of my favorite reality shows because it's actually realistic. Uh, it's called Shark Tank. It comes on NBC. Um, and it's about these... Uh, the show is the, these entrepreneurs, these, these local, you know, small kind of business owners that, that come onto the show wanting to make a deal with the sharks. And these sharks are these you know, billionaire tycoon business, businessmen and businesswomen who uh, are sitting in this little semicircle. And the point of the show is for you to walk in and, and bring your business plan and your record of, you know, sales and projections and, and everything that you know about your business and, and make a deal with them. Um, you want them to invest in, in your company so that you can get what they have to offer, but you've also got a little something to offer them as well. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's actually realistic because someone can come in with this like total sob story and these sharks will just look at them in the eyes and say, yeah, there's no money in it for me. I'm out. And they turn around and walk out. That doesn't happen like on, in other reality TV shows, right? Like, but it happens in the shark tank. Here's the point. Everybody walks into the shark tank. Everybody walks into that room with something to offer, with something to invest in, something that they think is going to grab those sharks' eyes and make them notice, something that they think is valuable and that they bring to the table. Nobody walks into the shark tank and says, I'm bankrupt, I'm in debt a million dollars, and I can't work, I'm handicapped, and I need all of your money, and if you give it to me, it'll cost you because I'll never be able to pay it back. That just doesn't happen. That just doesn't happen because that's not the way that the Shark Tank works. Because that's not the way that the world works. That's not the way that anything in, in your world works, is it? But it is the way that the gospel works. It is the way that Jesus works. Faith brings nothing to Jesus. Faith brings nothing to the table except need and lack and utter inability. Faith brings nothing to the table except your honesty about all the things that actually count against you. And it's at that moment that you expect Jesus to turn around and walk away because no shark would want to make a deal with that, right? But it's at that moment that you see Jesus in all of his grace and love and fullness, not turning around and walking away, but actually walking towards you. Because faith brings nothing to Jesus. What is it this morning that is standing between you and nothing? What something about you, or about what you think you have to offer, or about what you think would make Jesus notice you, 
What something is standing in between you and Jesus, or between you and nothing? Because that something, whatever it is, is standing between you and knowing the full weight and reality of Jesus' free grace to you in your nothingness. It could be anything. It could be something that deep down makes you think, you know, God's got to be glad to have me on his team. Or, you know, God knows that he really, he, he really caught a good one when he scored me because I've got something to offer. Faith brings nothing to Jesus because nothing qualifies you for the everything that Jesus has to offer you. It's so counterintuitive. It's not the way that the world works, but it's the way that the gospel works. You're nothing. When Jesus sees you in your nothing, he doesn't see you as disqualified. He sees you as qualified when you come with nothing. The heart of the living God is just so powerfully drawn towards his people with empty hands. Notice In this scene this day, there were so many people that were crowding around Jesus and jostling him. And there were who knows how many people. But one person reached out and touched him with nothing. And it stopped Jesus in his tracks. Because nobody else was. Because nothing is a really hard thing to have. It's almost like Jesus is taken off guard. It's it's one of the only times in the Gospels that we see Jesus like seemingly out of control like acted upon, um, thrown off, kind of, he's surprised. It's almost as if his grace and power and mercy are just so readily available to the people that come to him with nothing that it's like he didn't even have to say yes because he was not going to say no. That's how free and quick and lavish the heart of God is towards people with nothing. John Bunyan says it like this, he is so full and free that nothing pleases him more than to give everything that he has away to the poor and needy. Do you have nothing this morning? It's a hard thing to have and it's a hard thing to keep. But that's where Jesus meets you. So faith brings nothing to Jesus. But secondly, what does faith receive from Jesus? Here's the answer. More than you were expecting. More than you were asking for. When we bring our nothing to Jesus, what do we receive in return? We receive more than we were possibly expecting or asking for. You see, Jesus actually never gives you what you thought you needed. Because there's always so much more that he knows that you need. (laughs) Tim Keller says it like this, God always gives us what we would have asked for if if we knew everything that he knows. God is always giving us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that God knows. Now, how does this play out in the life of Jairus and this woman? We'll start with the woman. Notice, She just wants to heal and run. She just wants to touch him and get out of there because in her mind, this incredibly embarrassing and debilitating disease is the main problem, right? And so if if this gets healed, then it's all over. And guess what? She, 
she touches Jesus' garments and she knows that it is. She, experienced the, the, she experiences this transaction that we'll come back to in just a moment. But she knows that she's healed, that she's been made whole. And so in her mind, I'm out of here because I got what I need. But Jesus knows that she's only half healed. Jesus knows that there's so much more that she actually needs. Just like a good doctor wouldn't let a patient walk out of the hospital with IVs in, still in his arm and tubes down his throat, the good physician here knows that she needs so much more and that her healing, her being put back together, is not done yet. At first glance, though, look at how Jesus does it. It just seems kind of harsh, kind of unfeeling, unthoughtful um, for Jesus to stop the show and call time out and bring this woman back into the spotlight. He stops in his tracks and he makes it really awkward. Like this woman, she wanted to just get out of there because, I mean, you can, you can completely understand where she's coming from, right? But Jesus won't let her go. He wants, like he stops the show and he says, who touched me? And we're thinking, bless her heart. Because in verse 32, in fear and trembling, she comes and falls down before him and tells him the whole truth. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why does Jesus make it awkward? It's because there's a deeper need that Jesus knows that she needs that she didn't even realize that she needed. You see, it's very possible that this woman could have walked away from Jesus in this moment, walked away thinking, I'm healed, I have what I needed. But it only would have opened up a deeper wound. It only would have given her a greater problem because she would have walked away thinking, I'm healed, but I didn't do it the right way. What if he finds me? What if he's disappointed in me? What if he's going to take it back because I, I didn't do it the right way. And so she would have walked away from Jesus and just kept on walking. Because to then meet Jesus after this might have been too much of a threat. And the Lord of life and glory and the great physician himself would have been the very thing that she knew she couldn't ever meet again. You see, this woman... As much as she needed her body to be healed, she needed so much more that she didn't even know. She needed to know that Jesus feels the same way about her that Jairus, this father, feels about his little daughter. She needed to look Jesus in the eyes and hear him say, daughter. That's what she needed. You see, this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus ever calls somebody daughter. And he's doing it intentionally. What he's doing is he, he's tapping into the story that everybody is, is watching play out. They can all see this brokenhearted, desperate father, Jairus, who's come and said, my little daughter is dying. And so he taps into that and he uses Jairus as a kind of living sermon illustration to, to say to this woman, this is how I feel about you. This is who you are to me. You're not just a nameless, faceless, random charity recipient. You're my daughter. 
You came to me with your nothing. You came to me with the things that you thought would disqualify you. But I want to adopt you. I want you to know that this is how I feel about you. Can you even imagine the healing that would have been taking place in this woman's heart as she sits down and verse 33 begins to tell Jesus the whole truth? She told him the whole truth. That, is, that doesn't mean that she just raised her hand and said, yeah, it was me, Jesus. Like That would have taken five seconds. When she tells Jesus the whole truth, it took long enough to delay Jesus going to Jairus' house and long enough for the daughter to die. So it was a long enough wait, which means that Jesus sat there with this woman while Jairus tiptoed in the background, single, just focused on the pain of this woman's story. Can you imagine this woman after those 12 years sitting down and looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, my last 12 years have been a living hell. And I'm, and I'm tired, and I'm sad, and I'm lonely, and now I'm scared that I didn't do this the right way, and, that you, and I've messed it all up, and you're going to take it away. Can you imagine the healing that would have taken place when this woman, telling her story, would have looked up at Jesus and saw her own pain reflected in his face as he enters into the pain of her own story? That would have been a healing that she didn't even know that she needed. The, the healing of her hearing Jesus say, my daughter. Jesus was putting her back together in a way that she didn't even know that she needed. Because when we bring our nothing to Jesus, we receive from him way more than we possibly knew that we needed. Um, and we see this at work in Jairus' story too. You see, they both bring the same thing to Jesus, and they both receive the same thing to Jesus, from, from Jesus, way more than they thought that they needed. Um, and he does it in Jairus' story in a similar way. Notice, Jesus delays. He waits. He waits long enough, staring this woman in the face and hearing her story, that the little girl dies. Um... You can, just, you can just see Jairus tiptoeing at the edge of this crowd. He knows the scene in the bedroom that he left. Can you imagine what it would have taken for Jairus to leave his dying daughter to go and, to go and find Jesus? Maybe, you've, maybe you before have been at the edge of the, of the bed while a loved one died. There is nothing that would rip you away from that except maybe the faint glimmer of hope that somebody could make this better. And Jairus left her, and Jesus waited, and he delayed, and now she's dead. Why does Jesus do that? You want to throw a flag on Jesus for unnecessary roughness. Why does Jesus wait and delay? I mean, the the woman with the, with the bleeding disease had, had had it for 12 years. She could have waited another few hours. But the little girl is dying. But Jesus, he seems to mess up the triage here. And the little girl dies. Why does Jesus delay? Well, 
obviously, Jesus only knows the full answer to that question. But I think that at least part of the answer to this question is that Jesus knows that Jairus came to him with a certain, kind, a certain set of expectations about who Jesus is and what he's capable of. He knew that Jesus had power. He knew that he was out of the ordinary. He knew that he was a good teacher. In other words, Jairus had a certain kind of box that Jesus fit in, and it was way too small, and Jesus knew that. It's possible that Jesus could have healed this little girl and Jairus could have walked away back to his synagogue that already hated Jesus. And he could have been thinking, that was amazing, that was incredible. And Jesus is exactly who I guess he thought he was. And his life would have gone on. But what if Jesus delayed? Because what Jairus really needed was to see that Jesus is infinitely more than who Jairus thought he was. You see, we're always putting Jesus in a smaller box than he belongs in. And so often Jesus has to come and so gently but so forcibly make that box bigger because we have way underestimated him. And sometimes when Jesus pulls that box apart to make it bigger, it can feel like he's pulling our world apart. And it hurts. Ralph Davis says it like this. He says, it's as if Jesus is saying, Jairus, you trusted me with what was urgent. Now do you trust me with what is hopeless? You could trust me with what was alarming, but now do you trust me with what seems irreversible? You thought that I was adequate for that situation, but now what about this? Do you believe me in this incredibly more difficult an impossible situation. You see, Jesus is pulling apart and expanding the box that Jairus had put Jesus in because Jesus is never interested in staying in the little boxes that we put him in because he knows that the best thing in the world for us is for him to become way more than we thought that he was. And oftentimes he has to do that through pain, through what hurts like C.S. Lewis says, pleasures is when, is when God is whispering to us, but he seems to shout at us in our pain. And here, he is shouting at Jairus, do you trust me? Because I'm, I'm so much more than you think I am. You see, Jesus knew that, he was going to, that Jairus was going to have to hurt in order for Jesus to become more in Jairus' heart and his eyes than who he had been. In order for Jesus to give to Jairus so much more than he came asking for, but what is really the thing that he needs the most, Jairus was going to have to hurt. He would have to suffer. He would have to experience great loss. But Jesus knew that the pain that he was introducing into Jairus' life had an expiration date on it. He knew that it was going to be temporary. He knew that it was going to blossom into something much more real. That's why, that's why in the midst of this father's des despair, he could look at Jairus in the eyes and say, Jairus, don't fear. Just believe. Y'all, that is the most callous, unfeeling thing that you would ever say to a father who has just lost his only daughter. 
unless it's true. Unless it's true. But Jesus, he knew that he was in the process of giving to Jairus way more than Jairus had come asking for. He knew that this enemy called death that was bringing Jairus to his knees, he knew that it was not going to have the last word. Jesus knew that in just a few moments he was going to be standing next to that bedside looking at this little girl and that he was going to wrench down into the jaws of death itself and bring this little girl back. He was going to do the most lion-like thing of overcoming death itself, our greatest enemy, and the enemy that we have never beat before, that has a perfect batting average against us. He knows that he's about to send that enemy to its knees in the most lion-like way possible, but also in the most lamb-like way possible. Because Jesus sits down next to this bedside, of a dead little girl that would have made him unclean, being in the presence of a corpse. And he takes that cold little hand in his hand, and he speaks to her words that her father and her mother would have spoken to her on any other normal morning. In Aramaic, we have these words, Talitha Kumi, which really, really, the best translation that we have for that in English is, Get up, sweetheart. Get up, honey. It's time to wake up. The most lion-like show of strength and force in the most lamb-like way possible. We see in Jesus coupled together such strength and such gentleness. And you can trust a Savior like that. You can trust a Savior like that when he seems to be delaying, giving you the thing that you're praying for the most. When he seems to be introducing into your life loss or suffering that you have no answers for. You can trust a Savior like this, a Savior with a heart like this, because He's always giving us so much more than we came asking for. He's always giving us so much more than we came asking for. And, he, and he's doing that right now in your life, in the midst of the questions that you might have, in the midst of the loss or the hurt. To close with, this woman, she thought that she could just heal and run. She thought that encountering Jesus' power and strength and grace was simply just a one-way street going out from Jesus. But we have a window, into, a window into how Jesus experienced her that is so fascinating. She reaches out and touches Jesus, and they both feel something. She experiences health, and Jesus experiences weakness. She experiences gain, and he experiences loss. She experiences wholeness, and Jesus experiences something like weakness. And it's a window into the two-way transaction that happens when we bring our nothing to Jesus. We bring him our nothing, and he gives us his everything.
and it costs us nothing, but it will cost him everything. But he will do it with a smile on his face because he's a savior that's this good and this strong. You can trust someone like this. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. Give us ears to hear you calling us daughter, calling us son. Lord, give us eyes to see you with a smile on your face as we bring our nothing to you because you know what's coming and you know that it will be worth it because you have committed yourself to giving us infinitely so much more than we could ever dream or ask for. And so as we continue to walk and follow you, give us the grace to trust you as you do that. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.